Welcome to the Everlasting Education Podcast, the best of education through a gentle contempt for education. You know, uh, I like how you stress that. You know, you kept gentle and contempt pretty pretty equal because we're not we're not obviously pouring scorn and derision upon education. We are educationists. We are educators. Yeah, that, we, we just need that gentle contempt. It has to be gentle because we don't want to fall into either ditch, right? So, that's right. Yeah, that's uh, if. If you're just now joining us for our very first episode, episode one of the Everlasting Education podcast, which is a pretty clever title, I think. Yeah, we're pretty pleased with it. Going <laughs> going off of Chesterton, right? So he had yeah. this this essay uh, about about public education, and uh, he made the point that it's important to have a gentle contempt for education, and the whole reason we we. Uh, we obsess about state involvement with with education. The whole reason we have a skewed view of what education is, is that we let people who say they're the experts dictate how we raise our children. Right. So we need to hold that in gentle contempt. Yeah, and and so one of the things that Chesterton also points out in that um, that really delightful little essay that that he wrote, and if you uh, haven't listened, um, go back to listen to episode thirty one of the consortium podcast which right. was our last episode uh in uh launching this one as a new kind of direction but we'll talk more about it so anyway in this particular um little essay you know he talks about the fact that that gentle contempt keeps us from worshiping education itself right right it becoming an, an an idol and we're going to talk a little bit about that um as in terms of the early educationists, the educators, you know, in, in early America and how that has shaped our current situation. And we're going to be ripping off an article uh, from the Wall Street Journal. And we're pretty excited about talking about this. Is the public school system constitutional? Written by one Philip Hamburger, who um, is a doctor of law at Columbia University. So we're going to go through this article actually bit by bit. It's going to be a review, a reaction. And we'll just kind of go through a paragraph at a time, a couple of paragraphs at a time and drop our commentary because in, in a big way, like one of the reasons we want to talk about this article is here is a scholar at Columbia posting, talking about some of the same objections that we have been talking about right. in our own materials, but why we should mistrust government education. I, I have to say, I was quite surprised that this came out in the Wall Street Journal, this this article. Yeah. And especially because, you know, we've been promoting a little, uh, a little video, a film that we made, an animated film um, on the public education system called uh, We've Been Schooled, right? And, and so this sort of, you know, falls right in line with a lot of things that we're saying. And this is a Columbia doctor who is agreeing with this. Now, he takes a little bit different spin, yes. uh, but, but is holding a, much of the same position. And one of the things, well, you know, I, I don't want to get too far ahead uh, as we start to jump into this, but this different spin is important because we, we need to realize, first of all, just how very bankrupt and immoral the system is. Yeah. But, but second of all, you know, it's very easy for us to just get, get caught up in, well, this is how things are, right? <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, how else would it be? And so, you know, one of the ways you can break that is to say, well, how do they do it in France? How do they do it in China? Let's think about, uh, about these things. What do they have in common? What do they have that's different? What are the underlying assumptions? But you can also achieve that by having you know, a different spin, a different perspective, looking at it from a different angle, and then maybe from that different angle, you realize, you know what, 
things don't have to be this way. Yeah. Well, in philosophy, there is a uh, a common distinction made between what is and what ought to be, mm-hmm. you know, the ises and the oughts. And so we're going to talk a little bit about how things are and uh, what we think they should be. And uh, of course, as most of our listeners are going to recognize, we're going to come at this not just from a constitutional standpoint, but also obviously from a biblical standpoint as well. Yeah, so. that's right. Okay, so the article is, is the public school system constitutional? Education consists mostly in speech, and parents have a right under the First Amendment to exercise authority over what their children hear. Shall we jump right into the article? Yeah, I think so. Okay. So the public school system weighs on parents. It burdens them not simply with poor teaching and discipline, but with political bias, hostility toward religion, and now even sexual and racial indoctrination. Schools often seek openly to shape the very identity of children. What can parents do about it? We could almost end the whole podcast yeah. in the article right here. Yeah. Super easy. Uh, and that is, you know, uh, get rid of the public education system as we know it and, and dismiss it altogether. Pull your kids out and educate them properly. Right. Okay. End the podcast. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I, I think, you know, I mean, there, are, there are a lot of the, the bugbears that people who are anti-government school um, fight. You know, those bugbears are listed. But really the fundamental line in here is schools seek openly to shape the identity. Yeah, we and and the the problem is we're going to see as this article develops is this is their mission from the very beginning and they actually weren't really even quiet about it. Right. And yet so many parents have just, you know, conceded and they've handed their kids over to be educated by the government because it's free after all. Yeah, well you say they weren't quiet about it, but there is a little bit of disingenuousness going on uh, because both then and now, well, with modern educators, um, the myth, they encourage the myth that education can be sectored, mm. right? That it can be be isolated. So studying math is neutral, you know? Uh, right? So you're saying, yeah, so the, the idea that um, there is no um, religion or faith in a secular kind of education. We're just teaching them math facts. Right, exactly. And until you get to the 21st century, and now there's stuff, stuff called white math, right? Because <laughs> two plus two doesn't have to be four. That's you know? right, yeah. yeah. But, you know, it's, it's always been that way. Education is whole and holistic. Yes. Education is, is the raising of human beings. So what else would we expect? Of course, Of course, math is a part of that. Yeah, you, you can't actually teach math correctly. Um, you, you might be able to get away with it for a while, but you can't teach it correctly um, unless you acknowledge the presuppositions that are behind math and why math works consistently. Why 2 plus 2 always equals 4. Um, it, it has with us some presuppositions that you have to accept. And if right. you don't About accept what the those, world is like. Yeah, what, what the universe is like, who created the world, and why it was created this way. Otherwise, you know, it can be whatever you want it to be later on. Yeah. And speaking of presuppositions, um, in this next paragraph, we see some of them revealed to us. This starts with a quote. I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. Terry McAuliffe, the Democratic nominee for governor of Virginia, said in a September 28th debate. And, you know, that was just one of the many public kerfuffles <laughs> that, you know, in this 
COVID, post-COVID world that we're living in, you know, it, the system is in crisis and parents are in crisis. So there are these little crises that keep popping up. This is one of the recent ones. The National School Board Association seems to agree. In a September 29th letter to President Biden, its leaders asked for federal intervention to stop, quote, domestic terrorism and hate crimes, unquote. Mr. Garland's memo did acknowledge that spirited debate about policy matters is protected under our Constitution. That is true, but doesn't go nearly far enough. Education is mostly speech, and parents have a constitutional right to choose the speech with which their children will be educated. They therefore cannot constitutionally be compelled or even pressured to make their children a captive audience for government indoctrination. Well, there's so much to unpack here, but let me just kind of work backwards and start, first of all, with uh, Hamburger, the author, um, is, uh, I'm saying that right, Hamburger, right? Mm -hmm. I guess I didn't really think about the connotation of his last name, but so what he is, what he's sim simply saying here uh, in, in response to what uh, Ms. McAuliffe and, and some of these others have said, uh, he gives his own commentary about um, who's allowed. You know, they cannot constitutionally be compelled or even pressured to make their children a captive audience for government indoctrination. Now, that's his spin. That's his his take, and and I I largely agree with him. But the beginning of that paragraph brings up some assumptions about the nature, right of um, of what education is like, uh, about the, um, the government, uh, who has the, the authority. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so the, uh, the big idea, you know, the big idea that we have to shift is something that we were talking about before this idea of positivism actually. Mm -hmm. Okay. Which says that the state actually has the right and parents are in a sense trying to appeal to gain that right uh, or That's to right. gain that privilege. Yeah. But that is not the way it works in the natural law or in a biblical worldview. That's the way it works in a positivist society. Well, and, you know, it's, you know, Hamburger is, is obviously taking a particular angle. He's talking about free speech. He's talking about the Constitution. And, and, and this is where we have interesting contact with, you know, the Bill of Rights. And, and how those might be human rights, how these might these might be universal things. And, and so we, we have to realize that our, our own government has promised us to treat us like human beings. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we ought to fight for that. Right. I, be, I believe him. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and so I, I, there you, you mentioned positivism and uh, regular listeners to our materials will know that that I'm Brazilian and positivism was a hu positivism was a huge thing down there. Fruit of the Enlightenment and an absolute uh, absolutely big mess. But, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a dual citizen, and, but I, I am more upset right now at the American government mm -hmm. um, and at the state of the United States. Uh, than I am in Brazil, even though Brazil may be more of a mess because, um, you know, the, the, the roots of, of Brazil and, and how it came to be and, and the history of the people of Brazil, I don't feel like any promises are being broken. Yeah. In like, the United States was, was, was made under a compact, a contract, a, you know, there, there's a, there was an agreement made, a covenant made. This is how we're going to treat our people and this is how the country is going to be. And it's not. So there's, you know, there's a big sense of betrayal. And we ought to also have a sense of how things ought to be, even if we keep it in a limited uh, level of, of government and state. Yeah. And I, th I think what, what 
this word betrayal is is very important given the fact that if we go all the way back to the constitution right and and pretend that it has any real meaning today mm. yeah. <laughs> um, then there is a real sense of betrayal um, even even if we just um, even if we go beyond what they promised in terms of, of human rights, but going back to the enumerated powers that belong to the Constitution, because education, school, and education is not one of the enumerated powers of the federal government. Okay? Right. Um, so it naturally exists in the hands we would believe of the parents, you know, and then at the very most. Uh, within the state. And this article is going to do a, a great job of, of telling us why yeah. it is that we think that this naturally should fall under the authority of, of the federal government. One, one thing he says here to also kind of prep the article that I think is important is that he, he states that parents can't be constitutionally compelled to make their children a captive audience for government indoctrination, but he has another word in there besides compelled pressured mm-hmm. right yeah. and it's actually that pressure that creates you know, the the belief right there's not actually a a an actual well there is some sort of compelling <laughs> well the, yeah but, truancy yeah. laws yes you know right. i mean we, we could get into truancy laws that that could be a whole different conversation but but those those are more than just pressures those those are you know they're coercive hours that right we have to justify to the government what we do i mean so many of of our folks at kepler are homeschoolers Mm -hmm. right and that's that's one of the unconstitutional things that we have to you know just deal with in our day-to-day is explaining to our state uh you know why it is we're doing with our children what we're doing well let me read on here uh public education in america has always attempted to homogenize and mold the identity of children So from the beginning, he's saying this is the case, nothing new. Since its largely nativist beginnings around 1840, public education has been valued for corralling most of the poor and middle class into institutions where their religious and ethnic differences could be ironed out in pursuit of common American values. The goal was not merely a shared civic culture. Well into the 20th century, much of the political support for public schooling was driven by a fear of Catholicism and an ambition to Protestantize Catholic children. Many Catholics and other minorities escaped the indoctrination of their children by sending them to private schools. Again, so much to unpack here, but let's try to see what we can make uh, sense of. So what I said earlier about the fact that they didn't do this secretly, this this was um, this was in many ways, um, but, but it was except for the Catholics. And we'll talk about, you know, that influence here in a moment, impact that. But. By and large, this wasn't done secretly because everybody was on the same page mm. in terms of what they thought was important for American education. And and so a, a couple of things we have to keep in mind is at the time this is happening, so this is in the early 1920s, the overall prevailing sense in America was a lapsed Protestantism. Right. And that is significant. And honestly, I would argue that because you mentioned the 1840s and then into the 20th century. And you're absolutely right about that timing. But he does mention, you know, the 1840s were important for public education in the United States. I would argue that nearly from the beginning, certainly the first half of the 19th century, we're already talking about a country that could be described the way you did. Yeah. Well, it's it's for the most part, in, even in the earlier, the, the late 18th century, even we had a predominant amount of deists. Right. right. 
And, and what was able to happen, again, this could get really complex, but what was able to happen is because a lot of Christians and deists sh- still shared similar values. Right. They could We're all to- Christians here. Yeah. <laughs> right. We could work together on these projects. But then you can see how this begins to diverge as, as things develop. And, and so the idea of these lapsed Protestants, so there's a sort of um, liberal faith that is really only in a kind of moral civic sense, a civic kind of piety uh, that it exists. So the, the idea of bringing all of the immigrants into um, share a similar worldview and ideology. So he, he calls it here trying to, um, what does he say to? He says largely nativist beginnings. Uh, and about then making it, them it corrals, all yeah, yeah. Uh, corralling most of the poor middle class into institutions. And the goal is to Protestantize Catholics. Yeah, and so we have to think about the the Protestantizing yes. of the Catholics here isn't evangelizing, you know, or 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 bringing people on the same page. Honestly, it's making them Americans, yes, right? And that that is a lot of the rhetoric was that Catholics are anti-American, yeah. right? These Italians are anti-American. These Irish are are anti-American, and so you know we need you know we need to stop them from being Irish and Italian. What that means is we're going to stop them from being being Catholic. Yeah. Well, and and the reason that they could really leverage on the on the Catholicism there is because the the Catholics were keeping their kids in parochial schools, and then you know now we're losing tax dollars. We don't have the civic, um, you know, we don't have the civic mindedness about the you know the American ideal. They are teaching their kids religiously, and they're not adopting a lot of the the views that a liberal Protestantism had at the time. It's a lot of the same stuff that we're seeing now, yeah. right? Why are why are we who who clamor for and struggle for parents' rights to educate? Why are we despised? And and, and many of the other unclean groups in, in our society. We are unclean in, in American society today because we're not willing to play ball. Right. right? We're not gonna go along. And going along with, with, <laughs> with everybody else is, is apparently the American way. Right. And so back then there were certain groups disrupting that ideal. You know, you guys are stopping us from being good Americans, right? Now, now here you and I are with our unclean rhetoric, stopping other people apparently from being good Americans. Although those good Americans wouldn't want to have an American flag on their front yard, right? So the the ideology has shifted from elapsed Protestantism to a complete pluralistic, um, you know, postmodern, you know, uh, value system, whatever that might be. Which makes all the sense in the world, but that's a whole other podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So actually, let's unpack uh, what the term nativist means. Yeah, that's good. Because he, he claims that public education has nativist roots. So a, a nativist, the idea of, of being nativist here is is the idea of being American. And in some of the ways that we see this today is in uh, certain conservative even groups that, that have this idea that if everybody doesn't speak English and everybody doesn't uh, do things the way that um, – you know, you're coming to America, become American, right? And and so um, that can be leveraged in a way that is unproductive and, and inhumane. Um, and yet at the same time, especially at that time, you can understand why this would be important if we go back to our founders who understood that you needed to have a, an enlightened and, um, and and moral society, virtuous society, in order for a democratic republic, mm-hmm. you know, to maintain itself. But what happened there is the idea of what is virtuous shifted by this time. That's why I, I emphasize right. elapsed Protestantism. So now we need everybody to adopt our new 
virtues? What are the new virtues, the things that we value? And we can look at those today and, and see how we've changed so that we can kind of look back then. And today the virtues are things like equity, right? right, right. Not equality, but, but equity. These are the new virtues. And back then the virtues were a little bit different, and this is why Catholics were... Yeah, and, and I think that that plays into why the, the crises came when they did, because, you know, there, there are two things in play here. One is that, well, there's this new identity. So, okay, what's the identity? The identity is not one. And you and I uh, would be ones to say, you know, as Christians, we would say that man is homo adorans, that we are worshiping man, we're made to worship God. And so that, that gives us a very strong identity. So that part is gone. The other key part of that new identity phrase you just used is the new part, yeah. right? Not only was this a weaker identity in, in our belief than a religious identity, it's also being born, it's being shaped, so it's weak, which nativism had to emerge to protect it, it's, it was a def yeah. it's a defensive measure, and it, defensive in an ugly way, right? Well, they weren't saying like you know we we are come or don't come, but we are strong. We are who we are. We know who we are. No, no, no. We're figuring out who we are. So we need to build these fences. Yes. Well, and that that's and, and one of the problems with that is it's not rooted in any kind of biblical identity. Mm -hmm. It's rooted, as you said, this is sort of a new emerging. Um, you know, state. So it's a statist sort of ideology or a statist sort of um, virtue. Right. That, that's what's emerging at that time. And this is why we talk about even in our video on uh, We've Been Schooled, this is why Horace Mann was so uh, instrumental and, and not just him, he was just kind of the leading, you know, figure in this, but we want to get everyone uh, you know, wrapped around the civic piety, adopt a civic piety to think alike, to, to, to do things the same way. Not in a biblical way, not, right. in, not in a way that, that is worshiping man, but in a way that is civic man. And right. so we can say, generically, God and country, and kind of put everybody under the same umbrella, right? Yes. And, and really, so pluralism becomes not pluralism, right? It's really a, a form of monism, and we see the exact same thing happen today, right? So it's it's people people who are not willing to make being American, right, or, you know, whatever our society says American is the most important thing. Just as Christians before weren't willing to worship Julius Caesar, or Caesar, I should say. Um, so we are not willing to worship the United, we can be loyal American citizens as far as the law can tell, but the fact that we're not going to be compliant with the idea that that is the highest value. You can be Christian, or you can be Jewish, or whatever it is you're going to be on your own time, yes. right? Well, and, and I don't want to get off onto this topic. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's <laughs> There's so many. There are going to be so many of these, by the well, way. Well, <laughs> I yeah, and, and the fact, I mean, I feel like this is a, a topic, at least for me, that I'm, I'm really burnt out on. But it is relevant in, you know, this whole idea of how um, uh, a supposed pandemic has been leveraged against, you know, against people so that right. the civic piety, your moralism is framed around whether or not you're going to wear a mask or social distance or do all the things that the CDC yeah. says. And so this becomes a sort of civic piety. But the same thing was happening back then just around a different yeah, set of virtues. Absolutely. Now I'm going to read this next paragraph. Um, and, and I want to take the first comment because I'm going to talk about something that's not actually in the paragraph. <laughs> right. Okay. All right. So the last paragraph ended many Catholics and other minorities escaped the indoctrination of their children by sending them to private schools. Nativists found that intolerable. Beginning around 1920, they organized to force Catholic children into public education. The success of such a measure in Oregon with Democratic votes and Ku Klux Klan leadership 
prompted the Supreme Court to hold compulsory public education unconstitutional. Now, he's going to unpack that case uh, in just a bit. But I want to remind the listener that, okay, so beginning around 1920 is when this started happening, uh, this constitutional fight. That is the same time period as eugenics. Mm -hmm. There were other movements out there to clean our population of undesirables. Sure. Right. So you read Margaret Sanger. It's like it's not blacks, obviously. Right. (laughs) And but then also the dirty Irish. Yes. Right. right? So, I mean, and you should it's bad enough, you know, when knowing about the Tuskegee experiments and everything to read Sanger, founder of Planned Parenthood on blacks. And then it's unrelenting. You move off of that and it's right to the Irish and all their filthy babies and all their filthy Catholicism. And so there's just there's a society wide movement to clean out all that is unclean. And we need to realize we are uh, in that number. Yes. Right. And and so toleration, this idea of being tolerant of those that were willing to tolerate, you know, and those that were not, you know, was going on back then at the same time. So that's I mean, that's a really good point that you bring up. Um, I think it's interesting, though, too, that we we don't often um associate the fact uh, that this looks like a win, right? Uh, Because the Supreme Court holds this uh, compulsory public education unconstitutional. Yay, it's a win. Okay. But I think what's important is to understand how they did that. And I think that's going to be unpacked in that next paragraph. That's right. The case, Pierce versus Society of Sisters, 1925, was brought by a religious school, not a parent, Um, which I'm sure made sense at the time. The justices therefore framed their ruling around the threat to the school's economic rights. But Pierce says that parents can educate their children outside state schools in accord with the parents' moral and religious views. Although the exact nature of this parental freedom is much disputed, it is grounded in the First Amendment. When religious parents claim the freedom, religious liberty seems an especially strong foundation. But the freedom of parents in educating their children belongs to all parents, not only the faithful. Freedom of speech more completely explains this educational liberty. Yeah. So the, the problem the problem with this is the fact that the way the Supreme Court uh, frames it doesn't give uh, it doesn't appear to give parents the same right as as schools. Okay, so you can you can educate your kids on your own time, or you can educate them by sending them to a private school. It doesn't have to be compulsory. Right, and there's a suggestion in there that private schools need to justify themselves before the government. Right. They're like deputized agents. Yes, exactly. And nobody's talking about homeschooling here. And I and I think partly, and I'm going to say this is somewhat conjecture, but just given what we know about the the time period. Um, Everybody homeschooled who wasn't in public education or right. private school, right? That that was just the way. If you lived on a farm somewhere, that's how you were going to get educated is is being home educated, unless the community came together and put together a little you know public school. But by this time, it's it's becoming compulsory statewide, and eventually it becomes you know federally mandated or, or compulsory. So the idea of homeschooling isn't really an option, but your option as a parent to to protect your rights is to send them to a private school that has, as you mentioned, been deputized. Right. You know, he he mentions here that the freedom of parents in educating their children belongs to all parents, not only the faithful. Okay, well, we number among among the faithful. But I I think it's important uh, to realize here that he's rooting his claims uh, and, and really, we could talk about the Bill of Bill of Rights when it comes to this, but he's rooting his claims in natural law. Yes, he is, which is anti-positivism, right? And that's that's important to recognize because if if it's 
if it's positivism, if it's based completely on the law, then basically whatever the law ends up granting, what rights it ends up granting you, those are the only rights you have. Right. But in natural law, all parents right, right. have the right and responsibility to educate their children. Which is why, I mean, I, I can't cite it now, but you know, that's why I, was, I saw a video of, of a school administrator uh, telling parents that the government gave rights so the government could take them away. <laughs> Right. There, yeah, yeah, half I of know, this country thinks that's true. Right, because that's the positivist. Um, and, and when we're talking about this positivism, it is a technical term both in law and philosophy. But that the that the idea that the state owns the rights. I mean, this right. is because it's in a constitutional framework or a law framework, not in like what the English would call common law or what we would talk about in a broader sense of, of a natural law. And I think this is important um, if it was something we didn't mention or, or going all the way back to an earlier paragraph where there is now, uh, they're seeking, some of these educators are seeking protection from parents right. who would speak out against it because, you know, their natural lot rights, which right. are positive rights, are being infringed on by these nasty, dirty parents. By these terrorists, want, apparently. Want yeah. to tell them what to, <laughs> what to teach their kids. Well, so, so Hamburger here, again, Hamburger is the name of the author, <laughs> um, it begins to, begins to unfold a little bit what he means when he's, 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 he's anchoring his argument on speech. So education consists mostly in speech to and with children. Parents enjoy freedom of speech in educating their children, whether at home or through private schooling. That is the principle underlying Pierce, the decision Pierce, and it illuminates our current conundrum. The public school system, by design, pressures parents to substitute government educational speech for their own. Public education is a benefit tied to an unconstitutional condition. Parents get subsidized education on the condition that they accept government educational speech in lieu of home or private schooling. So really, I have two big things to un unpack here. One is, is education actually speech? Like, yeah. you know, do we do we buy that? And he means that in a constitutional sense. Uh, and then, yeah, what about this 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 pressure? I want to say two things about this, and, and this is going to seem maybe conflicting at the very beginning, but it, in, in a sense, he is almost relying, even though he's rooting this, some of his earlier statements in natural law, but he is relying on the Constitution right. you know, to support his, his argument. Well, he's a constitutional scholar, and this is, this is a constitutional argument, right? He's yes. doing it on purpose. There's this underlying, you can see that yeah. there's more underlying it, but yeah. Well, why I would still agree with him and why I think that's it's it's actually okay is because I believe largely, not entirely, but largely the Constitution is informed by Christian principles. Right. Right. It, Especially it, the Bill it of recognizes rights. Christian anthropology. Yes. And so by him appealing to this doesn't really undermine uh, his position, I don't think entirely. Right. I, I think it there is a potential that it could, you know, because natural law, I think, extends further than that. But the idea that, that the Constitution is rooted in these values and ideas, he's on firm, firm ground as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And, you know, and the Constitution is, is abstract, and this argument is abstract. Anytime you abstract something, there's a, a much greater potential to pervert it, yeah. right, to make it not about people. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I think this is still an important argument to make because we're operating in a country that purports to work off of this abstraction. Right, exactly. We purport. That's purports a, to. <laughs> that's an important word uh, given our, our, yeah. our modern. Well, in that second paragraph, though, you read, it says education consists mostly in speech to and with children. Parents enjoy 
freedom of speech in educating their children, whether at home or through private schooling. That's the principle underlying Pierce, and it illuminates our, cu- our current um, conundrum. Or I guess that was the, the, the first paragraph. Um, one thing that, that, that concerns me, I do think education is speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, not entirely, but speech yeah. is the medium by which we communicate and say that. Um, I think enjoy might be a little bit weak um, mm. because although we do enjoy the freedom, um, I, I think there is sometimes this idea that you pointed back to a minute ago that because we've been conditioned in this this positivist sort of way, that that's a freedom that could be taken away, you know, and you don't. You know, just because you enjoy it doesn't mean you're actually entitled to right. it. Right. You but don't I want think, to add something. Yeah, you know, yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, parents naturally enjoy or must enjoy freedom of speech. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, Chris, so he, he, he claims that there's, that there's pressure. And so he talks about some of the pressure. There's nothing unconstitutional about taxation in support of government speech. Thus, taxpayers have no generic right against public school messages they find objectionable. But parents are in a different situation. They aren't merely subsidizing speech they find objectionable. They're being pushed into accepting government speech for their children in place of their own. Government requires parents to educate their children and offers education free of charge. For most parents, the economic pressure to accept this educational speech in place of their own is nearly irresistible. Uh, yeah, this is the this is the drug dealer, you know, giving out, right. the, you know, till you get you hooked. Um, well, this, you know, uh, this points back again to that earlier comment I made where these, these teachers are feeling threatened by parents pushing their agenda on them or their, their speech on them. Um, but that, again, that assumes something that, that he identifies here, that but by design, um, parents, where, where does he say this? Um, parents, uh, the public system by design pressures parents to substitute government educational Speech. Well, anyway, he says the taxpayers don't have the same constitutional rights as the parents do. Oh, yeah, parents are in a different situation. They aren't merely subsidizing speech they find objectionable. They're being pushed into accepting government speech. So what what's in essence happening is parents are the ones who are actually being threatened, right. not the teachers. Yeah, and, and I think he makes an important argument. He's saying that the government has the right to tax even if the government does things that you don't like sure right okay and so that that's a he's right to put that as a totally separate conversation but then he's, but that's not the conversation is his argument right they're not just subsidizing speech they find objectionable they're being pushed into accepting this objectionable speech for their children in lieu of their own yes and and so just like those earlier when teachers were complaining that the parent you know that they're having to accept what the parents you know they're feeling threatened like terrorists are threatening them because the parents are telling them i don't want you saying this to my kids right um but really and what he makes accurately accurate the statement he makes accurate here is that it's the parents who have this right to say you're not allowed to to say that to my kids but it's hard go ahead i'm gonna say i just say but it's hard when somebody's you know Putting the bill for you, right? And I think it even goes beyond that because I think it, it's tempting for people. Okay, well, okay, so there's economic pressure to accept this speech. Well, don't accept it. Wake up, yeah. get woke, son, right? But we need to realize the, the government, you know, uh, has applied pressure like that in all in all sorts sure of, of areas before, right? And there's we can't, for example, look at. I'll just go totally wild, like just off off reservation, which is a, a pun, as you'll see. <laughs> Um, but you know, we, we can't just say, look at the jobless situation or, or the pandem pandemia 
pandemic of, of drug use on Indian reservations without talking about federal money. Right. Right. And there's no, we can talk about personal responsibility, but we have to acknowledge and we're talking about a, a community and a society, just, just the injection of funds can can cause can wreak havoc and shape the agenda in a way that the way the uh, the federal government wants it the withholding of money can also do the same thing and even just the presence of a product yes. right so you know for the second time i'll talk about uh, my brazilianness uh in in brazil a lot fewer people use the public education it's still massively used right uh, but the market for private education is so much greater that uh, people in the same economic stripe as their American equivalents, uh, if they here they wouldn't be able to afford a private school by any means, and there they can. Okay. And I'm not saying it's easy, right? But uh, th the fact that you know the economy down there never accepted s state education as sufficient means that there's enough competition here, but because of the of the mistaken philosophy, is particularly. But then we end up with market pressure, yes. right? And so. The private schools have to charge a lot because there's just there's not not a lot of them, right? It's not well, it's, it's not a sufficient business. It it isn't, and that's the market pressure. That that is that's a key to understanding how all of this is this is going to work, right? And uh, recently, I I put out just on some of my social media, just asking a question. I was trying to just gather some responses from parents who did not. Um, or, or who have put their kids in public education. And especially with all the complaints and all the things we're seeing happen, I just ask why, you know, why are you still doing it? I'm, I'm asking sincerely, this isn't to chide anybody. And, you know, most of the responses came back saying, there are no programs that I can afford that my kids need. My kids need these programs and I can't afford to pay for them. And I don't, I'm not equipped to be able to raise yeah. my own kids. And what I love about so much of, of, of this is, you know, the rhetoric that we get from defenders of government school, those are the same people who will talk about how disadvantaged folks need to be better educated, better trained, better socialized so that they can understand how to work well, how to interact with government programs well. You know, they're the ones who argue that somehow those of, those of us on the other end of the political spectrum um, are, are keeping them down, right, right through ignorance. And <laughs> it, it's just such a contradiction to me. It, it just kills me. So basically what you're saying is, it's paternalistic when it comes to the public school system, and then they veil their paternalism with these other programs by saying, "Well, we need to exalt these folks." Well, how are you going to exalt? How are you, how are you going to elevate these people if not by allowing them to have their own culture, to educate their own children instead of constantly undermining it? And you know, and he actually in the next paragraph talks about denying government benefits, which was one of the things that we mentioned. Just you know, just the denial yeah. of things can. Can, can shape a society. Well, I think there's something really big here, you, and you said it a minute ago, and this was this is where I was going to go with this idea, is that marketing, right? Um, this, there is, um, you know, in order for something, in order for any one of us to want to buy the newest widget that comes out, okay, you know, whatever, the iPhone 48, yeah. <laughs> whatever, <laughs> okay. uh, you, you have to be marketed, right? You have yeah. to be marketed dissatisfaction. You have to be marketed incompetence. You have to be marketed, you know, in other words, you have to be convinced that if your children don't get this program, 
they're not going to find social acceptance. They're not going to achieve. And if you go into the actual programs at many of these government schools that, that are being heralded and to, they're told that these are really, you know, helping, you know, kids, for the most part, they're not succeeding. Right. But the gatekeepers, the ones who are the ones saying whether they succeed or not, you know, it's the wolf guarding the, the hen house. They, they say that it is and they say, you know, over here where the parents are um, raising their kids who may have some needs, they're not succeeding only because they say so. It, it is rhetoric. It is marketing. And, and I guess the, the point that I want to make, and, and maybe I'm just being a little bit of evangelistic here right now, is, is parents, you can. Yes. You're capable. And if you have a church community, um, you, you have help there. You don't need those, yeah. that, that other community. It, you know. And hear that, parents, you can, um, with, with all of uh, the, the sympathy and mercy with which we mean it. Yes. Uh, because you know, we understand that it's daunting to do something that you haven't seen done by no. by other people. And so there 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 are others out there. Yes. There are communities. We're here to help. But and there are other pre- folks out there. Yeah, and we're not pretending that it's easy. We're not saying no. for, for any any stretch of imagination, but God designed it to be that way, that the parents yes. are the first in structure. So we we have a natural process given to us by God that right. we have to embrace. That may mean a change in lifestyle. Yes. But but you can do it. Yeah. And 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 really the the thing that makes me and make Scott confident saying you can do it right now, regardless of what your situation is, is the community of other parents who have, have taken this on. We are, we are out there and, and, and we, we can help. We want to help. Yeah, absolutely. So merely denying, continuing with the article, a government benefit will often suffice to violate a right, as when government refuses a benefit without a hearing, Goldberg versus Kelly, 1970, denies a grant on account of the recipient's religious beliefs, Trinity Lutheran versus Comer, 2017, or subsidizes a media organization on the condition that it refrain from editorializing, FCC versus League of Women Voters, 1984. Financial pressure, financial pressures clearly count. When government makes education compulsory, and offers it free of charge, it crowds out parental freedom in educational speech. The poorer the parents, the more profound the pressure, and that is by design. This touches on me bringing in eugenics. Nativists intended to pressure, so he's going back to the natives of the 19th century, nativists intended to pressure poor and middle-class parents into substituting government educational speech for their own, and their unconstitutional project largely succeeded. (laughs) Welcome to the 21st century. So yet another plug for for, uh, that video we made. Like You you should watch it, and, and, and you should share it. Just get the roots, get the origins of the government school system. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we one of the the philosophers that we quote in that video uh, speaks to this very thing. Ivan Illich talks about the fact that that the 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 poor are um, uh, disproportionately affected by these kinds of of compulsory of free education in a way. Why the while they're marketing. And this this is the thing that just baffles me. While they're marketing, saying this is for the poor, this is to help you. Um, that's like saying a drug dealer, you know, that's like a drug dealer saying, let me give you this, this will help you. And, and then they've, they've got you in the clutches, right? You, you've, you, you've got to have the product, you, you, you've bought into it, you're addicted to it in the drug dealer situation. But the same way that happens with, with parents and, and, and even the poor families in this, you get conditioned into a way of living, right, right? That, that you can't see that there's another way out. Well, and, you know, we, we've talked at length in, in, in other places about how 
how, how sad it is to have an educational goal that maxes out as be a productive member of society, be a yeah. good worker, right? Yes. Like we, 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 we want more than that. We want full humanity yeah. for our, our little humans. But you know, <laughs> for a system, they can't even keep that promise, right? No, right? Yeah. I mean, so we see that they actually, they, they not only market a lie, they, they, they can't deliver the product. They can't deliver any kind of product. People, people are graduating from our high schools without being able to get basic operator laborer jobs. Functionally illiterate. Yeah. Uh, at one point, I read a statistic. This would have been in the mid-90s. 60% of public high school graduates are functionally illiterate. Right. And, you know, th this is, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, if there were someone to take my teacher card they might take it away at this point but there is nobody and i get to keep being a teacher <laughs> um it's okay to be functionally illiterate you can be gloriously human and be conformed to the image of christ and be functionally illiterate but if you have sold half of your life yeah. And you live in a society where the economy requires like there, there's no there's no negative to your humanity, but someone is lying to you and right. telling them telling you that you're they're going to equip you to have a prosperous successful life. That, yeah, and then they're not delivering that. That's that's the point. And and just to to follow up on your on your statement, you're absolutely right. Um, in in terms of you know if literacy if we see that in its purest sense that whether you can read or write doesn't mean you can't be a great human being. Uh, Homer and you know and, and for generations yeah. people who were uh, in an oral tradition you know didn't have literacy, but we live in a society where where literacy is is fairly foundational right to being a, a productive member right. of society and they can't deliver on this very basic promise it's, let alone, it's not difficult to achieve that's right. that's the thing yeah it's simple and they're, they're not delivering on it um let alone giving the virtue and the values and the in the kind of training that would make virtuous full flourishing right. human beings but you know you know part of the lie here is that you know they they are they are promising to make you a productive member of society you know, and I, I sort of misstated a, li a little earlier because actually what they want, you know, as I stated more in a more sinister fashion, what they actually want is an acquiescent member of society. Yeah, that's right? that's what they want docile members. Yeah. Bef before you move on, I just I want to throw this quote in here. But I, I was working with a, a man when I was in pastoring in Las Vegas. He was retired from the Air Force. Uh, uh, commissioned officer, retired from the Air Force, went to work in the public school system as kind of a second career because you can retire fairly young yeah. in the military. And I was just talking to him one day, and, and he's like a, a student counselor, and um, and I, I don't remember all the subjects he taught. And I just asked him, say, how is it? Do you like teaching in the public school? Just kind of conversational. And he just shook his head, and he said, I counted a good day if we can keep, and, and this is in Las Vegas, <laughs> if we can keep the kids from doing drugs, killing each other, or having sex in the quad, he said, we count that a good day. Mm. You know, if you treat people like animals, you're yeah. going to pressure them into behaving they, they that behave, way. Yeah, they're yeah. trained and to talk to their If you animals. convince them further that they're animals, that's, that's even worse. But yeah. Yeah. hey, there's another podcast. Right. Right? <laughs> they just keep popping up. <laughs> so most parents can't afford to turn down public schooling. They therefore can't adopt speech expressive of their own views in educating their children, whether by paying for private school or dropping out of work to homeschool. So they are constrained to adopt government educational speech in place of their own in violation of the First Amendment. 
Oh, goodness. Um, so I'm, I'm going to say again, this is going to be a little more of this prophetic evangelizing. Um, yes, you can afford it. It may mean a, a change of lifestyle, and uh, and it may be so radically different you can't imagine it. Uh, right. But you have to you have to consider what the priorities are. Now that said, um, I heard uh, recently I was at a conference um, we were speaking and I was talking with Lee Bortons uh, from Classical Conversations. Right. And she was telling a story about a mom saying, I, "I'm going to have to put my kids in public school." Um, she was in a situation where she was now finding herself as a single mother, and what what could she do? And so the question that she raised is she said, I'm not condemning you or, or putting you down if you need to do that. And that's your choice. Um, I understand the situation. And so this is no judgment. But why is your first response? I don't have another choice. Do right. you not have friends? Do you not have a church family? Do you not have neighbors? Do How important know? is this? Yes, exactly. So I would go so far as to say this, Scott Postma. If education is raising our children. Yes. We have to think about who's raising our children. It is better to have no education at all than to be educated by the government. I would hundred wholeheartedly agree. And if you start from there, you can kind of reset some of your goals. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) You know what? Maybe we don't actually need to get uh, this class and that class that the the public school demands. And I think you will find as you begin, as you go through the process, you can do more than you thought and you can begin to incorporate more. But if all you do is is pull your kid out of out of the government schools and give them a stack of books that they can handle, find some documentaries for them to watch. Just yeah. start there and go. I, you would you will be absolutely amazed of, at where something like that would go. But but it is a paradigm shift. And, yes. and probably, and maybe this is a good time just to plug this to our listeners, especially if you're just tuning in for the first time. I know this sounds absolutely radical, the things that we're saying. It is um, radical. It is. But it's really not as hard as as what the the world or the government has marketed um, the alternative to be. Right. Particularly you, not when you're doing it in community, right? Like you said, like Lee Borden said, yeah. you know, don't you have friends who can help you? Yeah. You know, other people who value this as well. The government pre-public schools doesn't have to be the first default, especially when they're espousing the very things that are contrary to the things that we believe that, that are true and right and good and beautiful. Right. And if you have no idea where to start, talking to people about this email me yeah a long line of establishment clause decisions recognize the risk of coercion in public school messages in grand rapids school district versus ball 1985 the high court condemned private religious teaching in rooms leased from public schools quote such indoctrination if permitted to occur would have devastating effects on the right of each individual voluntarily to determine what to believe and what not to believe free of any coercive pressures from the state Justice William Brennan wrote for the majority. Coercion seems central in such cases because of the vulnerability of children to indoctrination. Summarizing the court's jurisprudence, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, concurring in Wallace v. Jaffrey, 1985, observed that when government-sponsored religious exercises are directed at impressionable children who are required to attend school, government endorsement is much more likely to result in coerced religious beliefs. So th- this must be talking about some of uh, some schools would have like seminaries or religious classes and, th- right. and things like that. And, you know, and, and there is this belief out there that some people have that uh, religions brainwash, but they don't, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, where on earth does that come from? So, so religions coerce, but we don't because we're the state. We are the starting point. We are the neutral point. Yes. We have no pH. We are secular, meaning we have, yeah, we're, we're I, I always say this. You can stand on your left foot 
or put the weight on your left foot and you can put the weight on your right foot, but you can't stand on no feet. Right, right. right. And, and so you can say, well, if you stand on your left foot, you're, you're coercing religiously. But if you stand on your right foot, you stand on the government, that's still, there's weight there. There is still something yeah. weighty that's being taught and, and there's an ideology that's being, you know, uh, purported. Yeah. And I mean, you know, parents, you know, we, we, parents indoctrinate. Okay. Let's just use that word. Let's yeah. use a, a, a gross word, a yeah. strong word. Right. Um, well, well, if parents indoctrinate, who else indoctrinates? Right, exactly. Right? I mean, then there's the, the government is the largest indoctrinating agent. It's not just Marlboro with their Marlboro man and their camel uh, guy that was apparently designed for children. Yeah. And you can tell <laughs> that I came of age in the 90s. But, you know, it, it, the, the government is, is and we, we see that now much more plainly. Right. But three years ago, you could be driving down the road and see a sign urging you to behave responsibly in some medical fashion. Yeah. Right. But now it's everywhere. Do you see it now? Oh yeah. And, and, <laughs> and there's almost a coercion to it. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So this isn't in the article, but, but something we were just talking about here in reading, I hear parents sometimes still, I still hear this. I'm going to let my kids decide what they're going to believe when they grow up on their mm. own. Mm-hmm. That is the stupidest thing. And I'm sorry if you've ever said that. I'm not, you know, maybe somebody said that. Goes, but that is the stupidest thing ever because yeah. everyone is in the market to indoctrinate your children. That's right. Whether it's the Marvel man you mentioned, the public school, or the transgenders at the public libraries right. you know, doing readings for children. What that tells me is that you don't actually believe what you say you believe. Which is that? Well, so, I mean, if, if whatever it might be. Oh. Right? Because if you think, so if oh, you- Oh, you're not talking about me. No, you're not saying, you. Okay. No, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I hear what oh, you're saying. Yes. Scott. <laughs> Let me tell you why you're deluded. No, but, but it's, so- Yeah. We're supposed to live up to what we've attained. If we, if we really believe that the earth is flat- Right, and, and it's important that we tell our children that. You know, and let's start with that terrible example, right? But you know, if we believe that two plus two is four, yes. we better get that into our kids' heads, right, right? So we want to pass on how the cosmos is. What is the world like? How does the world work? We want our kids to do well, and we want to pass on everything that we think is good. If you have things that you think are good, it is your responsibility to give them to your children and to say, this is the good thing. Yes. Not that. It's not new. Oh, you can decide whether this is the good thing. All that tells me is that you don't believe that anything is good. Right. Exactly. It's, it's a kind of cop out, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I don't, I don't want to be responsible. But it can for only it. exist. That cop out can only exist in a world framed the way it is by the government, yes. right? The government has convinced us that there is such a thing as neutrality, that secularism is not a religion. <laughs> oh, let's, let's proceed. These precedents concern only religion in public schools and the coercive effect on rights are exceptions to power, James Madison observed. That is, rights defeat power. But contemporary judicial doctrine allows power to defeat rights. Mm-hmm. At least when government asserts what is called a compelling interest. One might think that a state's compelling interest in public education overpowers any parental speech right. Yet because such analysis allows power to subdue rights, it is important to evaluate whether the claimed government interest is really compelling. Well, one of the things we need to define here real quickly is the difference between rights and power. What does he mean by power? and What mm. does he mean by rights? And so by power, we're talking about the coercive power of the government, right? So right. that collective um, power, we've all agreed uh, that this is 
right to do. We don't drive on the right side of the road, that kind of thing. So the government has the right to compel certain, uh, through its power, it has the right to coerce, I'm sorry, certain behaviors uh, for the public good, right? Um, and so the question is, does the parent's right to educate their children and have free speech and tell them what, what to believe, does that, is that, um, should that be replaced? Is it subservient to the government's coercive power or is the parents or is the government's power subservient to the parents' right? Right. This and, is the question. And one of the things that's going to be, be unpacked here as, as, as we go forward is the problem of the apparent un-Americanness, right? What yeah. creates the compelling interest of the government in government education? Like, you know, we could talk about eminent domain, right? Yeah. And okay, well, people have private property rights and, you know, Courts argue about this stuff all the time, right? But the government's going to go out there and make a case that they have a compelling interest in taking your land to build a road, right? And then the whole the whole kerfuffle can ensue and a decision is made. Well, we know exactly what the government is arguing for when they want that land for a road. But what is the ar- the government arguing for uh, when, it, when it talks about compelling interest in in government education. What they want is a certain kind of human, yes. and that is unacceptable. The government cannot tell us what kind of human beings it needs. Ultimately, that's slavery. It is slavery, and it's slavery to a particular regime of government, to a right. particular kind of government. It's a self, it's an act of self-preservation on behalf of the government. Right. It's the government self-preserving itself. We need these kinds of citizens so that we can kind of function. We need the cogs. We need the workers. We need the consumers. We need the docile citizens who are not going to rise up and threaten teachers and tell them what they ought to, you know, right. this kind of, we, we need these kinds of people. And so this is what the government education system is, is, all about. Yeah, the bureaucracy is protecting itself. Yeah, absolutely. And you can see, I mean, you, you brought up him in a domain as an example of this coercive power, but there were cases here just a few years ago where, uh, and I don't remember which town it was in, but they, they wanted to take property um, so that they could sell it to a developer who was going to build a Walmart. And their argument for eminent domain was that the city needed the tax revenue from the thing, Ooh. and so that, that's how far they went. Wow, that was the, the the public need. They need your children. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> that's what is the resource they are selling that saying they have a compelling interest in? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay, well, the, U- the United States was founded, says Hamburger, in an era when almost all schooling was private and religious, and that already suggests that any government interest in public education is neither necessary nor compelling. Oh. Further, the idea that public education is a central government interest, sorry, as a central government interest, was popularized by anti-Catholic nativists. Beginning in the mid-19th century, they elevated the public school as a key American institution in their campaign against Catholicism. Now, before you start on your rant, because I heard you go, ho, 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 and I knew you would, because Scott, uh, this is one of Scott's uh, soapboxes, and he talks about it in that video. We've been schooled. Um, But we should just mention here, neither one of us is a Catholic. We are both Reformed Protestants. Um, so, you know, for, for us, this is not about Catholicism. Right. Neither is it for Hamburger. This is his scholarly background. Yeah. I don't know if he's a Catholic himself, but his scholarly background is actually about this stuff. Yeah. So rant away. So rant away. All right. So this this idea that um, <laughs> this this idea that. You know the nativist, this lapsed Protestantism at the time. I mean, this is what's this is what's informing it. Um, this is the need to have these kind of civic 
um, these, these kind of civic students, these civic people um, that are not going to be um, – their allegiance is not going to be to something higher, more transcendent than the state, right? Right. And for a Catholic, you don't this – is, this is kind of like in the title of our podcast about this gentle contempt for education. So when education becomes that thing to be worshipped itself, then we're not worshipping God. Uh, for the Catholics, the idea was that God came first – and that's where the worship was was going to be centered on, and that to be an American was to be free to educate to, right. your children according to those <laughs> principles that they believe. But for the American nativist, no, it wasn't. Um, and and remember, this this is something to keep in mind, and, and it might be difficult in in from where we sit today to recognize this. But you had guys like John Rockefeller, right? With uh, with um, uh, was it National Oil, uh, mm-hmm. so or Standard Oil? So you got guys like Rockefeller, who was this lapsed Protestant, liberal Protestant, giving lots of money in the name of this civic kind of piety, the civic right. sort of Carnegie, J.P. Morgan. Yes, all these guys that were. So it, this is an industrial age. We need people who are workers and cogs to help advance this new America and people need to be like-minded. These Catholics are messing it up for everybody. Right. Yep. So I think we can take a bigger chunk uh, of the article to talk about uh, this, this self-interest in their vision, public schools were essentially for inculcating were essential for inculcating American principles so that children could become independent minded citizens and thinking voters. The education reformer and politician Horace Mann said that without public schools, American politics would bend toward those whom ignorance and imbecility have prepared to become slaves. That sounds wholesome in the abstract. In practice, it meant that Catholics were mentally enslaved to their priests and public education was necessary to get to the next generation, imbuing them with Protestant-style ideas so that when they reached adulthood, they would they would vote more like Protestants. This, I, I'm going to stop yeah, you. Sorry, yeah, do sorry. it. Do because, it. because this, I mean, the state is the grand savior here. Right. Right. Rescuing, yes. rescuing these poor kids and uh, from their families who are indoctrinating them in this metaphysical idea um, and that uproots you from the materialism that that we need you know to be rooted in to be good industrialized americans yeah. right we, we've got to have this and and so and again i want to point out I, I can't emphasize this enough this isn't the kind of protestant Right. It makes that, me a little itchy how he uses the term Protestant, but I can't argue with it because we're talking about, as you said, a lapsed Protestant it, society. It is. So at, at that time, even if it wasn't, okay, this, this might mean these terms are going to mean something a little different today. So we, it's, it's kind of like thinking back about Jefferson's Republicanism, right? This is different than modern day Republicans. Um, in that day, a Protestant would not be the same thing as a fundamentalist. Okay. Right. So anybody who actually believed the Bible and the resurrection, um, the deity of Christ, they would be more like Catholics. Okay? Yes. In so, fact, in the, the, we're talking about the 1920s. Yeah. That is when the book that coined the term fundamentalist came out yeah, yeah. because Christians who actually believed their Bibles had to start differentiating themselves from everybody else. That's exactly right. And there was a whole bunch in the 1920s of these articles. Um, some guys sponsored them called the fundamentals and they were articles right. about this thing. And that, that became really a term for these really truly religious people uh, that were followers of Christ who would be much more like Catholics than the Protestants that hamburgers talking right people about. who had identities stronger than the one the U.S. government was trying to give That's them. That's exactly right. Yeah. 
So this goal of shaping future voters gave urgency to the government's interest in public education. As today, the hope was to liberate children from their parents' supposedly benighted views and thereby create a different sort of polity. Now as then, this sort of project reeks of prejudice and indoctrination. There is no lawful government interest in displacing the educational speech of parents who don't hold government-approved views, let alone in altering their children's identity or creating a government-approved electorate. Hmm. <laughs> the idea of a common civic culture among children is appealing when it develops voluntarily, but not when state-approved identities and messages are stamped upon their minds, as the 1904 tract put it. Far from being a compelling government interest, the project of pressing children into a majority or government mold is a path toward tyranny. Ta-da! Ding, 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 ding. Here we are. <laughs> <laughs> we can make that the fullness of our comments. Like, ta-da! Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so the shared civic culture of 18th century America was highly civilized, and it developed entirely in private schools. And actually, that, that is something worth researching, the universality of education in, in colonial and post, you know, immediately post-revolutionary times. The schools, like the parents who supported them, were diverse in curriculum and their religious outlook, including every shade of Protestantism, plus Judaism, Catholicism, Deism, and religious indifference. That, that's that's actual pluralism right that's <laughs> shall i continue yeah continue so in their freedom the 18th century schools established a common culture in contrast public school coercion has always stimulated division mm. it was long used to grind down the papalism of catholic children into something more like protestantism since then there has been a shift in the beliefs that public schools seek to eradicate but the school remains a means by which some americans force their beliefs on others that's why they are still a source of discord the temptation to indoctrinate the children of others to impose a common culture by coercion is an obstacle to working out a genuine common culture and i know we're both going to have comments about this but i think it's really important that, it, that he, he mentions that in their freedom 18th century schools established a common culture and, and that was the case i mean just think about the diversity we don't we, we even protestants when the scots landed in south carolina they were told to go up a river because the english didn't want them there <laughs> right i mean it's just it was just across the united states there yeah. was division but there was also a bond a, a union created and because it was organic it was real it it became sick once it began to be coerced yes. but but it also meant that the interested parties had to keep injecting it right right, right? so they have the system that keeps going well that's and that's where the institutionalization you know has to happen i mean that's the natural outworking of this kind of thinking but one of the things that is just um i think i just lost my train of thought so um the uh, statement you made here, schools remain a means. Oh, yeah. So I was going to, I remember now. <laughs> oh, good. It's the bait and switch. Okay. Uh -huh. So at that time, the idea here is that, that we need this common culture centered around a sort of civic piety, a, a, you know, a kind of identity that allows for you to have your, your religion privately at, at home. We, we want that. But now that we've got everybody in this coercive treadmill if you will or you know yep. we've got everybody on here now we're going to switch it and it's going to be a full-on statist you know anti-god yeah you know kind of a culture that's that's being formed well and you know and and i think it should, should be obvious that that it would be status and anti-god but it isn't always first of all because in in the bible belt and the red areas of this country um, you know it's it's you know hey i i'm in this rural area and all of my my uh children's teachers are Christians, right? So we have to think about the teleology of the thing, but 
really we, we have bought the bait part of this that that this that this is an integral part of making us American and that being American might even be the most important part of our identity. So you get people who would po politically be against the state being in control of a, of a product or resource in any other area, but they'll s still proudly sing the national anthem at a football game in Missouri and Texas and Alabama be because the, the, they've, the, the, school, the school system managed to convince everybody this is how you become American. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And this is going to be off track and you don't have to answer this one. I'll put you on the spot. Uh -oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, We're almost at the end, Scott. Why do you have to do this to me? So this, this lends to, I, I guess, a question about um, one of the things that we've seen happen in, in more recent political argument is about this idea of nationalism. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And, and so this is a kind of nationalism at that time. But today, the mood seems to be anti-nationalist. Right. Okay. So wouldn't that be a good thing, given what we saw nationalism did here? Well, no. <laughs> because we, we've been talking about what education is, is supposed to, to create. And is the highest thing you want for your child really to be a good American? Yeah. Or is the highest thing you want for your child for him or her to be Christ-like, right? right, And if they are Christ-like, then they can be a good American. Even if what that means is fighting against the supermajority to establish a just country, yeah. right? That would be, but that would be being a true American. You need Jesus first, y'all. You do, and and I know I kind of set you up with that, but 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 the idea here is that it's the shift. Uh, this is a uh, an equivocation, a fallacy of equivocation on what it means to be. What does it mean to be an American? Yeah, right, exactly. So if it, if being an American means that America is the top priority, then we've we've yeah. really missed. And if being American is what the government tells us to be, then our whole yeah. history needs to be scrapped. <laughs> <laughs> I think we went to war over that I once. Know, yes. All right. Well. There is no excuse for maintaining the nativist fiction that public schools are the glue that hold the nation together. They have become the focal point for all that is tearing the nation apart. However good some public schools may be, the system as a whole being coercive is a threat to our ability to find common ground. That is the opposite of a compelling government interest. The public school system, therefore, is unconstitutional, at least as applied to parents who are pressured to abandon their own educational speech choices and instead adopt the government's. In the last paragraph, judges will be reluctant to vindicate the uncomfortable truth that education is mostly speech. Many have assimilated the nativist ideal that public education is a central and compelling government interest. As in 1925, however, the threat to parental speech has become unbearable. Here, here. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I agree with him wholeheartedly. I think even in our video, uh, we go back and, and we talk about if we really want to protect that, I mean, this gets really sounding radical, but we do need to amend the Constitution and and not <laughs> not just the the Congress they, they shouldn't uh, coerce any kind of religious institutions, but also schools. Right. You know. Well, and I love the ambition of, of of that video you made and 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 making that for making that appeal. Sure. Right. Um, but both both with that and with this article, wonderful article, we love it, and you need to appeal to the government and to those who have power to make these changes, right? And with a prophetic voice speak and say, that, you know, this must be done, repent, make things just. But let's be, let's be realistic about this. How is it actually going to change? 
you start homeschooling. Yes, take right? your kids out of the public schools. <laughs> <laughs> that's how it's actually going to change. Yeah, that's exactly. You know, and, and it's not going to be parents at PTA meetings getting in shouting matches and, and, and trying to get hold of the microphone before the police drag them away. I mean, that makes for fun YouTube. But that system shouldn't even exist. And the way you can blow it up is by leaving. And everybody needs to leave. Uh, in mass exodus. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, this has been fun. Yeah, sure And I, I mean, there's so much we could still unpack. Hey, if you want to talk to us further about this, feel free to shoot us uh, a message. Uh, this will be up on, on our um, uh, our website, and uh, you can uh, email me at scott at kepler.education or joffrey at joffrey at kepler.education. We'd love to chat more about this. There's so much more to unpack, but this is all we have time for today. So long, everybody. God bless you. <laughs>